0: All right, everyone, let's get started. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. We left off on page 29, as was just confirmed for me. We are in uh, the third chapter, the pre-existence and incarnation of the Son of God. And Dr. Scare has been leading us through a critique of Reformed Christology. Uh, In particular, if you recall, for the, for the Reformed, because of this philosophical concept that the finite is not capable of the infinite, then there's not only a distance between God and fallen creatures on account of sin, but there's also a distance, this is the Reformed way of thinking now, between God and his creatures on account of simply their being creatures. There's this chasm between the divine infinite and the created finite, and that can't be breached. And so that you even see that in the person of Jesus, that where God meets man in the person of Jesus, you're just you're left with these two things that can't, by definition, ever really touch or have communion with one another. It's a it really is a Nestorianism where you've got the two boards glued together. You've got the divine side of Jesus and the human side of Jesus and Though they're, though they're connected in one person, they're, they're really two persons. They're, they're really quite distinct and there's no interpenetration one of the other. So that's really where we've been and we, where we are in the middle of this kind of conversation, this kind of critique. So let's simply pick up without further ado on the top of 29 and get ourselves back into the text. Here Dr. Scare writes, Confessional Lutheran Christology operates with both earth and heaven, not in reformed spatial terms, but in the sense of the Nicene Creed, things visible and invisible. The incarnation and resurrection appearances do not involve some sort of <laughs> quote unquote space travel from heaven to earth, as if they are two places removed from one another. Christ was manifested in the flesh, 1 Timothy 316, and he appeared to his disciples, 1 Corinthians 15, 5 through 8. And I'll just simply point out that that biblical language of uh, he was manifest and he appeared is really using those categories of visible-invisible. He who is invisible appears. He who is invisible is made manifest. You see, it doesn't say that Jesus you know, got on a rocket ship and flew through... Uh, you know, the cosmos, first he had to get outside of the the solar system and then he had to get outside of the galaxy and then he had to get outside of space and finally he entered heaven and you know, then, then he's going to come back the same way. So, so we're not conceiving of heaven and earth in, in these spatial terms as if Jesus is ever was, is or ever will be far distant from us. All right, and we see that from the scriptures. So, picking up where we left off. With this understanding of reality, which does not see the universe divided into spaces but into the distinctions of visible and invisible, the formula of Concord predicates divine attributes to the human nature of Christ. The human nature, by virtue of the personal union with the Son of God, shares in all the majesty and glory which the Son had with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity. The human nature is said to receive all glory, honor, power, and might in time and is exalted to God's right hand of majesty and power. So again, you could point to any number of New Testament texts, but why not simply to the words of Jesus himself when he stands on the mount with the disciples, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And when he says those words, he's saying them with what—a human tongue and human lips. So all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, the man. That is to say, then the the human nature shares in all the qualities of the divine nature. All right. So then, this this, you know, if you think about it in terms of like a, if you try to visual visualize it, there's this interpenetration where the where the the Son of God, the divine nature, in in taking on flesh and assuming flesh into itself, it interpenetrates the human nature so that that the human nature takes on the characteristics of the divine. And that is precisely then what's rejected by the Reformed who say, no, there's such a separation between creature and created. There's such a separation between God and man that this could never take place. And again, the consequence of this reformed philosophy is you, you end up with things like in in John 20 where Jesus appears in the upper room where the doors are locked Jesus has to climb in a window ninja style whereas in in Lutheranism and really in the rest of the church you have this idea that well we don't know precisely how his physical body passes through lock door lock wall whatever it was that he passed through but there he is in fact you don't even really have to posit a passing through He simply manifests himself in their midst. He simply appears in their midst. Right? I mean, either one of those ways of conceiving of it is far better than this idea that that Jesus somehow had to crawl into a window because his body can't do divine things. All right. Let's continue with Scare in the midst of this rather large paragraph. The true mystery of the Incarnation is not that in it God expresses a close and natural relationship with his creation, but that he assumed a form which had the same limitations imposed by sin on his creation, a fate all human beings have in common. Okay, now this is a subtle distinction, and Dr. Scare is going to draw it out, so I'm not going to make too big of a deal of it here. It'll become clearer. The, the true mystery of the Incarnation is not so much in God becoming man. The true mystery of the Incarnation is God becoming man in such a way that, um, well, as Scare says, he uh, is subject to the limitations imposed by sin on his creation. So that Jesus comes as one born under the law. Jesus, He comes as one who... Um, subjects himself to sickness and death and injury and pain and you know human things that we humans only experience really on account of uh, the fall. That's the real mystery of the incarnation. Okay? Again, not so much that he just becomes man but rather that he becomes uh, under, the, under the curse. He becomes a man who is under the curse and subject to the curse, subject to the, uh, the powers of sin. Um, it understood in that respect. Okay, let's continue on with Scare then. The fact that in Christ God was made man is the great mystery of the faith, which must be, strictly speaking, kept distinct from the teaching that he was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary. The latter truth is the way in which the great mystery of the faith was accomplished. Consequently, incarnation, in the sense of God assuming a created form, cannot be viewed as completely alien to the nature of God who is is creator. And you know, this isn't Scare's point precisely, but God assuming created form, you see examples of this all throughout the Old Testament in the burning bush, in the pillar of fire by night, the pillar of cloud by day various theophanies and manifestations. So this idea that God unites himself with creation isn't isn't really an alien one. Um, I mean there's there's some mystery involved to be sure, uh, but it's not exactly what's going on in the, in the incarnation itself. Scare continues, in the presence of such a mystery that God assumed the form of a servant whose weakness made him resemble all other human beings even to the point of his death, Saint Paul calls on heaven and earth to bow the knee in wonder and amazement. And this is um, Philippians 2, 5 through 11, which we may as well open up because there's going to be rather continual reference here throughout the close of this chapter. And if I'm not mistaken, into the next. Yep, I'm correct. Toward the end of the next chapter also. So it's not going to do us any harm to flip open to Philippians 2. Um, and then we'll have that fresh in our minds. So, just to get the larger context, Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. Now keep that in mind um, you have form of God versus form of servant do you see that contrast in Paul so that's what scares referring to here taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself so there's the language of humbling or the language of humiliation uh, theologically understood remember humiliation doesn't mean embarrassment it means the humblement except that's not a word. So, uh, he humbled himself, you could even say theologically, he humiliated himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, if you're going to parse this out really carefully, the, the humbling um, is, and the making himself nothing, is precisely coming in a servant, and a servant Um, Not only being in the likeness of men, but uh, the likeness of a man, but um, then in becoming obedient to the point of death. Okay, so coming as a man, such that he is under the powers of the curse, such that he is going to be the sin bearer for us. That's that's really the the greatest uh, mystery and the the greatest act uh, or aspect, I should say, of the uh, incarnation. So, once more from Scare at the end of that paragraph. In the presence of such a mystery that God assumed the form of a servant whose weakness made him resemble other human beings even to the point of his death, St. Paul calls on heaven and earth to bow the knee and in wonder and amazement. And so we, we see then the end of this rhetoric, verse 9 of chapter 2, Philippians. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All right, and again, that's the mind that we're to have in us. That's Maybe that's a good point. to to bring out that, that this text isn't merely about Christ, this text is about having that mind which was in Christ Jesus also in us. Namely, if the Son of God Himself did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but rather Um, emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant, being obedient unto death, even death on a cross, that precisely should be our mind, not only in fealty to the Father and obedience to the Father, but then also in self-sacrifice for our neighbors and for those whom we love. So have this mind in in us as well. All right, then, um, and interrupt me, uh, those of you who are here, if you have a question or if I'm not making something clear, if something isn't clear in the text. Yes, Bob. Yeah, I uh, wanted to just ask, to clarify, uh, if if he wasn't humbled, it would be impossible for him to die. Uh, Therefore, uh, because you couldn't kill God, right? no matter what. Yeah, so you you bring up a great point, just so I can repeat it for those who are uh, watching the stream. Uh, Yes, he, he humbles himself by even allowing himself to die. That's right out of John's Gospel. No one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the power to lay it down and the power to take it back up again. You're exactly right. And this, there's this beautiful Christological element, where, of course, you can see Christ, Christ, um, his suffering and his death, as passively happening. You, you, can, you can, in a sense, even hear that in the language of passion. passo. I suffer. Um, when you suffer something, it happens to you. You permit it to happen. Um, or, or uh, Yeah, that's probably right. And then, um, but there's also this, then, that comes from John's Gospel, where there's this active self-offering and this active laying down of his own life that Christ does on the cross. It's not completely passive. In fact, passive is just like one side of the coin, active is the other side, um, where no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I lay it down, I take it up again. So, complete activity on the part of the Lord, complete control on the part of the Lord. He chooses exactly when he's going to die, exactly when he gives up his spirit, and so he does. Yeah, great point. Uh, did you have a follow-up point? or would, I mean, that's a great point in and of itself, yeah. All right. In the tradition of Chalcedon, and you remember the Chalcedonian, uh, the Council of Chalcedon in 450. Um, That's what we're talking about. In the tradition of Chalcedon, Lutherans confess that Christ is one person or ego, but with the human and divine natures distinct in regard to their respective natural properties. The divine nature possesses by nature all the attributes of God. For example, omnipresence, omnipotence, omniscience, and the human nature possesses typical human attributes, such as hunger, thirst, and limitations of space and time. The personal union of the two natures in Christ is so complete that each nature is operative through the other. Not in such a way that they are confused. If it were in such a way that they are confused, then you have neither God nor man, and you've done a Eutychianism. Okay. Not in such a way they are confused, but rather in such a way that there's a real communication of attributes between the two natures. Okay. Mary actually gives birth to God, and therefore is quite correctly given the title Theotokos, the God-bearer. And is known to be the mother of God. Okay? So, in other words, what happens to the man happens to the divine. They're one person, it happens to Christ. I mean, is God born? Yes, because it's it's Christ who's born. Uh, So, so you can see then here that there is a communication that occurs, uh, not a commixture, not a confusing, but a communication. And there there aren't these two there aren't these two boards where you know you gotta say, well, this has just happened to the human nature. And this this just happens to the divine, you know. Um, it was the human nature that was born of Mary, but the divine wasn't born, or it was the it was the human nature that was somehow in the womb of Mary, but not the divine nature. That would be a big mistake. And and so the church has rightly called her the Theotokos, the godbearer. The union between the two natures in Christ is so complete that the Lutheran confessions teach it was not a plain, ordinary, mere man who for us suffered, died, was buried, descended into hell, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, and was exalted to the majesty and omnipotent power of God but a man whose human nature had such a profound and ineffable union and communion with the Son of God that it has become one person with him. i write that from Article 8 of the Formula of Concord Epitome. What is distinctively Lutheran is the understanding that because of this personal union, the man Jesus, whom the formula calls the Son of Man, always possesses the divine majesty with all of God's attributes, a point which the reformed have continued to oppose. Burkhoff, he's a reformed theologian, obviously systematician, Burkhoff claims that the Lutheran assertion that the divine attributes are communicated to the human nature is tantamount to its denial. Now, how, why would he make that claim? Because if the finite is not capable of the infinite, if you say the infinite can pass on its properties to the finite, then it ceases to be finite. So then it ceases to be man in his, in his reasoning. That's what he's saying here. Okay. Luther had to face a similar charge, namely that his Christology was similar to the Eutychian confusion of the divine and human in Christ. The reformer's theology of the cross was a strong affirmation of Christ's Humanity. When Lutheran uh, theology speaks of the humiliation of Christ, this is not meant to imply that at some point the divine nature of Christ relinquishes its attributes, or that Jesus never did possess any attributes. Rather, by humiliation, it is understood that during the years before his descent and resurrection, the divine attributes were not exercised in their full majesty and glory. Uh, So so for example you see Jesus not using his divine attributes uh, in every instance. And and that's just simply the the humiliation is the setting aside of these things. Um, You can even to a degree conceive of things like this, that, that Jesus um, so so the incarnate one let's put this just to be clear the incarnate one on the mount of transfiguration remember how his face itself shines like the sun now again if you're going to be burkhoff if you're going to be a reformed theologian like you technically have to deny that to be consistent because can a can a human face shine no that's a divine property if it's if it's a divine property shining through the human nature then according to burkhoff and according to this logic it's no longer the Human nature. I mean, thus making Christ a Eutychian in the Transfiguration by their logic. All right, so obviously we can negate that. On, in the Transfiguration, when his face is shining like the sun, and you see this too in Revelation, don't you? When John is on the a- island of Patmos and behind him there's this one speaking, and when John turns around, his, his eyes are like a flame of fire and his whole visage, his whole appearance, face, uh, everything really is shining in the, in the full power of the sun. Okay just speak very plainly this is how the incarnate one is that's how he is the fact that when jesus walked around people didn't see his face shining light and his and his eyes lit up like fire and all of this is his humiliation it's the withdrawing of his divine properties so that he's not revealing or showing those forth through the human nature you see So the standard isn't Jesus walking around as a normal human being, and then the transfiguration is this exceptional thing. The transfiguration is the normal thing, and the fact that his face isn't constantly shining is the the different thing, you see? So that's what then we're talking about by the humiliation. As as Scare said, it's understood that during the years before his descent and resurrection, the divine attributes were not uh, exercised in their full majesty and glory. All right, well, we've got this little uh, tangent here where uh, kenoticism is brought up. So I guess we'll hit on that real quick, and then we'll end the chapter. In the 19th century, some Lutheran theologians, led by Thomasius, held that the divine nature and not the human nature was the subject of the humiliation in that the divine nature was emptied of all divine attributes this theory known as Kenoticism. Kenoticism means to empty out. It actually comes from the language of Philippians too. The problem is he's saying the emptying out is of the divine nature. Uh, you'll see the problem as we go on. Um, this theory known as Kenoticism was a somewhat bizarre attempt to combine traditional Christology revived in a renewed interest in the Lutheran confessions with then contemporary understandings of the historical Jesus as developed by Tomasius, it, is made use of, uh, it made use of the view popularized by Schleiermacher that Jesus was an autonomous historical person who was developing a religious sense about himself as divine. You remember this theory that Jesus is just walking around like slowly figuring out that he's the Messiah. Right. Nonsense. The distinction of those works within the Trinity, opera ad intra, that's, um, That's the internal inner working of the Trinity between the persons. And works external to the Trinity, opera ad extra, those works that the Trinity itself performs and thus performs in a unified sense, was used to support the kenotic view that Jesus was deprived of divine attributes during his earthly life. Okay, what would that actually look like concretely? I know this is kind of like high-flying academic stuff. What would that actually look like concretely? Any miracle that Jesus did, Jesus didn't actually do. He had to, he had to pray just like any other Old Testament prophet that God would do it, and then God, God would do it, not Jesus, right? Okay, so carrying on then, this kenotic view that Jesus was deprived of divine attributes during his earthly life while still enjoying full Trinitarian participation. Confessional Lutheran Christology asserts that Jesus performs both divine and human actions at the same time. Okay. Again, it's not as if the divine nature is doing one thing and the human nature is doing a contrary thing. It's, it's one Christ. You can't have that. You can't have these two independent persons doing different things or contrary things or else you've destroyed the unity. You've destroyed the, you dis, you've destroyed the hypostatic or personal union. You now have two Christ, not one. So again, confessional Lutheran theology asserts that Jesus performs both divine and human actions at the same time. He knows all things Yet must learn and grow as any normal child. The, wor- the world depends upon him for its very existence. Yet, as a babe in arms, Christ depended on the Virgin Mary for sustenance. According to his divine nature, Christ fills all things. Yet, during the days of his earthly sojourn, he was confined to one place. So we have a dif- we can distinguish, like between the divine and human natures, and yet it's one Christ. So can you say that Christ knows all things? Yes. Can you say that Christ had to grow in wisdom and stature? Yes. It's one Christ. You have these two different natures, and you can can see how the natures are distinct and to some degree contrary to one another, and yet they have a unity in the person such that The person can be said, uh, or rather the other way, the things of scripture can simply be attributed to the person. He was tired. He hungered. He was thirsty. He knew all things. Um, He needed nothing. He needed no food. He needed no drink. You know, that kind of thing. All right, well, Scare continues. It may be argued that in the history of Christian theology, none understood the implications of the incarnation better than did Martin Luther. I'm just dropping down to the footnote we do not meet God outside of the man Jesus Christ in whom the whole fullness of God dwells bodily a reference to Colossians 2 9 for that would be to move toward the naked God of speculation while God wishes to come near to us for our salvation in the form of the flesh of the man Jesus as he appeared in history and as flesh present in the physical elements of the gospel announced and in the sacraments. In Zwingli's admission that there is a presence of Christ in his divinity but separated from his humanity, Luther discerns a grave danger to one of the fundamental principles of the faith, namely the revelation of God present in a hidden fashion in the flesh. Okay, the, the take-home point of this is um, that it is precisely in Jesus uh, where God is revealed. Okay, so we do not meet God outside of the man, Jesus Christ. Okay, so, so then, I mean, that puts just a different directionality to it in the way of your thinking. But to encounter the man, Jesus is to encounter the divine one. And you can't encounter the divine nature apart from the human nature, you see. So there, that just takes it from a different angle, but you can see the same thing. That, that the divine and the human are so one that to see one, namely the human, is to see the other, the divine. They're one person. So we can, again, we can articulate the differences between the two natures, and yet we're going to sustain the unity of the person. So all of this, while, while this might sound complex, while this, if you, this is your first time thinking about these things, your head might be spinning a little, you know that's okay. Just go back to the main points that we get from the scriptures, from the early church councils. He's true God, he's true man and one person. Again, it really never gets more complex than that. What, how, however much your head might t- twist around or spin as you consider these things, the heretical view is simply attacking his divinity, attacking his humanity or attacking the unity of his person. And we simply are defending against that on the basis of God's word and, and the Catholic tradition. All right. Yes, sir? Yeah. Not to oversimplify the Trinity, but you, if you accept the Trinity or learn to accept it in the sense that, okay, it's three in one, and you kind of are dealing with it, it's not that big a deal to go, okay, now we have to deal with this two and. one. Right, thank you. Yeah, so the point made, just for those of you who weren't able to hear it, as a Christian learns the Trinity, for example, you learn that God is uh, three persons and yet not three gods, but one God, one God and three persons. And moving from that, then you see that there's one Christ and two natures. And so there's all kinds of things that makes our reason recoil. But again, Christianity isn't, isn't a reason first, faith second religion. It's not, well, if it makes sense to you, then you should believe in it. It's precisely the opposite, as Augustine says, crede ut intelligus, believe in order to understand. It's faith first, reason second. That's the the ministerial use of reason, right? Reason as a servant of the word, as opposed to the magisterial. I'll believe it if I can understand it. Well, if that were true, you wouldn't believe in the Trinity, you wouldn't believe in Jesus, you wouldn't believe in the sacraments. Frankly, you wouldn't believe in any article of the Christian faith because every article of the Christian faith has two natures and yet is one whole. You know, that's, often, that's often where you realize um, you, know, you're, you might be going through the scriptures and you might be confused by something you read in the scriptures. Very often it's because you have down very well in your mind one side of the coin and you don't know how to integrate the other side and it appears to be contradictory really they're not contradictory. You simply, we confess both and you realize in which ways you can do that, holding them together as one united principle. So, I could give you any number of examples, but I won't bore you with that. Great point, Bob. In this way, in this way too, and this isn't precisely, I think, the way that Scare meant it, but it certainly um, is apropos of it, maybe even a subset of it. All theology is Christology. When you're learning this pattern, this pattern of, of one Christ with two natures, two natures, one Christ, you're really learning the pattern of all theology. You're learning the pattern of every single article of the creed. Take the scriptures, for example. Are they divine or human? Yes. Right? They're inspired by the Holy Spirit, and so they're completely divine. Yet they're penned by humans, and so they're completely human. Are they two scriptures? They're one scripture. You see, so that this paradigm we're learning of the two natures of Christ and yet the one person really, frankly, applies to uh, every single article of the faith. You can do the same thing with grace. You, know, you can say, uh, "Is is grace? Does God will that all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth?" Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's universal grace. Is it God alone who saves, apart from our decision? Works. Yeah. So that's that's monergism. That's Um, sola gratia. So you take these, so then you say, what is grace? Is grace uh, sola gratia, God selects? Or is grace universal, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth? Yes. Are these two different graces? No, it's one grace. Can we understand how those cohere? Not precisely, but they're one grace, biblically revealed. Can we understand how the divine and human cohere? Not necessarily, there's quite a bit of mystery there and yet there's one Christ. So, in other words, we're in learning the pattern of Christology, we're learning the pattern of, of all the articles of the faith. Okay. Let's finish with this uh, beautiful hymn of Luther's... Uh, so, the last, last few lines of this chapter, Scare writes, This great mystery of the faith is masterfully expressed by Luther in his version of the fifth century hymn by Sedilius. Now praise we Christ, the Holy One. Here's Luther's uh, translation, so to speak. Upon a manger filled with hay, in poverty content he lay. With milk was fed the Lord of all, who feeds the ravens when they call. Isn't that beautiful? With milk was fed the Lord of all who feeds the ravens when they call. So, hu- human nature, he's being fed at the breasts of Mary. Divine nature, even while that's occurring, he's feeding everyone on the earth. Ah, it's just beautiful. Just beautiful. And true. That's the most That's why it's beautiful. All right, that's the third chapter. Now, with that as our segue, we move into the virgin birth of Christ. What I'd like to do during these early pages... is uh, is skip around and really get to the substance. This is all maybe profoundly interesting to you if you're in seminary or have been through seminary and maybe you're a pastor and you want to be brought up to speed on what all the controversies are and what 19th and 20th century theologians have been thinking. Um, but in terms of just getting, getting mileage out of the material for a Bible class, I'm not sure how interesting that is. I'd, let's just spend time on the, on the wholesome and good content. So I'll try to skip, or, skip us through and, and just get the, get the wholesome content in these first few pages um, as, as we move on later in the chapter where really it is all positive, wholesome content. We're not reviewing any errors. All right. So, in the first place, no surprise folks have denied the virgin birth of Christ and uh, they've basically said they've basically asserted that um, this idea that Christ is is born of a virgin is something that has been later written into the texts of uh, of Matthew and um, Luke by the church okay and the premise of this is, well, there are other pagan religions where the hero or the, go- the god, whatever, um, has a virgin birth. So Christians later on down the line said, hey, that's that's pretty neat. We want Jesus to have that too. And so they wrote it into to the Gospels. I mean, this is all nonsense, of course, but this is what we're up against. At the very uh, bottom of the first paragraph on page 32, Scare points this out. He says, Another difficulty is the fact that Matthew, uh, particularly chapter 1 verses 22 through 23, understands the virgin birth as a teaching derived from the Messianic prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 rather than from pagan mythology. Okay, so what's scarce point? It's a problem for these people who are denying uh, the virgin birth and that the virgin birth is an authentic Christian teaching from the beginning. Precisely because Matthew has a text to base it on and that text goes back 800 years before Christ Isaiah 7 and 14 where you recall the prophecy um, from a virgin will come a son okay so uh, Scare already just punches a hole in that theory that this was gleaned from paganism it's rather taken from the Old Testament scriptures itself Interesting side note, in the middle of the next paragraph, scare says, at the beginning of the 20th century, the virgin birth was the first doctrine to divide American Protestants into fundamentalists on the one hand and liberals on the other. Um, so if you're a fundamentalist, so-called, you held to the virgin birth. If you weren't, you were a liberal. Uh, passing over to page 33, and here we get a little bit of a, a discussion that's, that's worth slowing down. Um, so Scare has made the point already that the virgin birth comes from, uh, there, you can re- make a really tight case that it's in Isaiah and then it's taken into the Christian church, not by virtue of paganism, but Matthew takes it on the basis of Isaiah. Okay? So it's got this, this history to it, this grounding to it. Now we'll talk about the creed and how it comes to us in the creed a little bit. That'll allow us to see some other things. So, just picking up on 33 with the first full paragraph. 16th century confessional Lutheran theology understood the virgin birth to be essential to its Christology, which was taken over from the ancient creeds. For Luther in the small catechism, the one who is begotten of the Father from all eternity, is the one who is born of the Virgin Mary. When the Nicene Creed describes Jesus as being, quote, incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary, end quote, it is referring strictly to the conception of Christ, not his birth. Okay, so that's something to have in mind. When did the incarnation happen? I mean, this is the same mistake we make all the time as modern American Westerners, you know. As soon as 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 the baby's born, we say, congratulations, you're a dad. Were you not a dad nine months ago when the baby was conceived? Of course you were, right? So we do this error all the time. Uh, but we don't want to make the same error with Christ. When does the incarnation take place? Not when He's born, but already when He's conceived in the womb. Okay. Scare continues. The Apostles' Creed, the later version of which is uh, less ancient than the Nicene Creed. Okay, so if you trace the the roots and origin of the Apostles' Creed, you're really going all the way back to probably like the second century, where you find it. Okay, now. The Nicene Creed is really the product of uh, the Council of Nicaea. So it's more like fourth and then maybe some emendations and you've got it in the fourth and fifth century. But the Apostles' Creed as we have it in finality doesn't become finalized until the eighth or ninth century. So which which creed is older? Well, it depends on what exactly you mean. In its more or less finalized form, the Nicene Creed is technically older though the roots of the uh, Apostles go earlier. Anyway, this is what scares after. So, the Apostles' Creed, the later version of which is less ancient than the Nicene Creed, distinguishes between the conception and birth of Christ. Jesus is said to be conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. The earliest forms of both creeds were less exact, as Jesus was confessed as being Quote, conceived, now in the Latin, born, so you can see the imprecision here. Conceived, or in the Latin, born of the Holy Spirit and Mary the Virgin, end quote. The distinction in this formula between conception and birth was less than fully clear, and Mary appears as an equal participant with the Holy Spirit. While the versions of both creeds, as they were later used throughout Christendom clarified these issues, the confession that Jesus derived his humanity from the Virgin Mary has remained constant. No creed ever referred to his mother as merely Mary, but always as the Virgin Mary. The creeds followed the example of Matthew, who identified the virgin birth as the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 which promises that the one born of a virgin will be identified as God with us, Emmanuel. So that's Isaiah into Matthew. And then the creeds follow this. While there is no controversy over whether Matthew and Luke teach the virgin birth, the historical accuracy of such a position is questioned and its place in the church's early proclamation is contested. Okay, and that, that's going to segue and, and lead us to you know, some more combat with the false, uh, with the false doctrine here. but. Okay, so what Scare is doing is very carefully, very academically, painstakingly laying a foundation where we're seeing the foundation of the virgin birth, even just in a, in a restricted sense, rather restricted sense, Isaiah, Matthew, the, the continual ca- understanding of Catholic tradition expressed in the symbols and the creeds. Make sense? That's really what we've done so far. Now what he's going to do is is flesh this out for us and give us all the other biblical data that helps us confess that Jesus Christ is in fact born of the Virgin Mary. All right. Now, the next point that he positively gives to us, uh, at least scriptural data for this, is toward the bottom of 34, the last full paragraph of the page. There he writes Galatians. Of course, Paul writes Galatians. Galatians is considered among the earliest four writings of the New Testament. Okay, so Galatians is thought to be, by most, earlier even than the Gospels, closer to the source, you see. So it, it behooves us once in a while to, to really remember um, the history here and remember Jesus being crucified and raised. Um, most scholars either say 30 as one date or 33 as the other you see there's a cycle of three there and just how you line things up is where that difference comes, for our purposes it doesn't make much difference you have, um, you have some of the Pauline epistles perhaps as early as the early 50's okay. I'm, I'm just trying to do consensus biblical scholarship, they could be wrong of course some people think that Matthew might have even been as early as in the 40's maybe even as early as 40 maybe even James is that early some people hold that Mark is the earliest but that continues to seem to be debunked that that's not the case Matthew is likely the earliest Um, but really what you have here then is you have at minimum let's say roughly a 10 year period between the events of of Jesus' death and resurrection and when any of the first New New Testament documents are written you see, ten years. So for ten, so so then they reflect. These documents do something for us. They reflect what was going on in those ten years. They're not written in a vacuum. They don't just fall from the sky. And if it's you know if it happened to be twenty years even, then they reflect what those twenty what those twenty years are. So it's important to just have that framework in mind as we consider Scares argument and pointing to these things. It's very much a historical argument as much as it's a theological argument. So. Galatians is considered among the earliest four writings of the New Testament, about whose Pauline authorship there is no doubt. Paul, unlike the Gospel writers, presents little by way of a life of Jesus. But he does make reference to Christ's birth when he writes in Galatians 4.4 that, quote, "...God sent forth his Son," born of a woman, end quote. For the Jew, the inheritance came through the father and not the mother. And so Paul's expression is more striking than the 20th century reader is apt to detect. In other words, if you were just a a Jew talking about a a Jew born of um, a, a Jewish male named Jesus who was born of a man, you would never say that he was born of a woman. So what's Scare demonstrating here? That in one of the earliest documents, certainly written by St. Paul, St. Paul introduces Christ in a way that would only make sense if the, the doctrine of the virgin birth was already present. You see, so much for it being a later development. Scare continues, in the same section, Paul says that Christians as Abraham's offspring and not Sarah's, See how he points to the male in the case of, of us or yeah, Abraham's children? Um, but when it comes to whose child Jesus is, he doesn't point to Joseph or any other male. He, he points to Mary because Mary is his only earthly parent, so to speak, when, at least when it comes to generation. All right. So in the same section, Paul says that Christians, um, as Abraham's offspring and not Sarah's, are heirs of the promise. The father sets the time for receiving the estate. Um, All references to the Galatians text. If Paul had known that Jesus had a human father, it certainly would have been appropriate for Paul to mention him at this point, but he does not. Jesus is said to be born of the woman, a reference which encompasses both the virgin birth and the promise of Genesis 3.15. How does it encompass the virgin birth? Well, there's obviously no man there. <laughs> so there's the virgin birth. All right, so it encompasses both the virgin birth and also the promises, the promise in Genesis 3.15, the proto-evangelium, the very first gospel presented in the scriptures. And that's, remember, God speaks to the serpent. Um, the seed of the woman will crush your head, you he will bruise his heel. Okay, so he speaks this to the serpent. Now, of course, fascinating is women don't have seed, right? So even that line right there bespeaks the virgin birth. It's going to come from a woman, not from a man. This in and of itself is going to be miraculous. The virgin birth is already there in Genesis 3.15. So, again, since we're building a biblical case, not only in the Old Testament may we point to Isaiah 7, we may also point to Genesis three. And then, not only may we point to Matthew, who directly quotes Isaiah 7, and Luke, who just states it outright, but we may also point to St. Paul, who arguably is earlier than both of them, and Paul himself points out Jesus, virgin birth. Okay, so you see how now we're fleshing out the biblical case for the virgin birth. Well, I left off mid-sentence with Scare. Let's just grab that whole sentence again. Jesus is said to be born of the woman, a reference which encompasses both the virgin birth and the promise of Genesis 3.15, where the promised deliverer is said to be born not of man's, but of woman's seed, a very unusual expression considering the culture from which it originated. For uh, Yeah, well, let me see if I want to do anything there. Yeah, I think Scare just makes this point after you know contesting some of, the more, uh, some of the other errors. Down at the very bottom of 35, if we just look at the last four or five lines, we'll get the sense of it. Rather than being a doctrine which originated in the late apostolic era, it is an issue which surfaced during the ministry of Christ. Evidence for the virgin birth should be sought in the preaching of Jesus himself. All right, so we've got the Old Testament. We've got the New Testament attestation. Now let's go to the person of Jesus. Let's see if Jesus anywhere ever deals with his own virgin birth. That's the move. And I I see that we're running short on time, so let's just start on on the top of 36. We'll see how far we get. The great section on the parables, Matthew 13 and Mark 4, begins with the mother and brothers of Jesus desiring an audience with him. Rather than acceding to their request, Jesus claims his disciples, those who do his father's will, as his new family. My brother and sister and mother, quote, right? That's what he says. What is striking is the absence of any designation of those doing the father's, or as Mark has it, God's will, as his father. Okay, so in other words, Jesus says, these are my mother and brothers, right? So he doesn't say my mother, uh, excuse me, my mother, brother, sister, etc. But he doesn't say father. Again, here's a hint that he, he's acknowledging and confessing himself that he doesn't have an earthly father. Right? So Scare continues, Jesus is replacing his original or earthly family with his followers, the church, as his new family. No one can take the place of his earthly father simply because he has none. Similar in this argument, similar in this argument to Matthew and Mark is John 6. In response to Jesus' claim that it is the will of God, his father, that one who believes in the Son has eternal life. The Jews assert that he is the son of Joseph. To this response, Jesus does not directly reply, but continues to speak of his father as the one who draws those who come to him. These sections in Matthew, Mark, and John presuppose that Jesus knew that he had no earthly father, and show that the question of his origins arose already during his ministry. So already during his ministry, they were saying, uh, is this not the son of Joseph? And then, of course, the the story that that is somewhat known is, of course, that, that Joseph denies this, and so then there's the accusation that he is born illegitimately. And so both of these are used to discredit him both that he's born illegitimately or that he's merely Joseph's son. To both of these, Jesus responds just completely unperturbed that his father is God, not Joseph. Right? Um, you can even see this, for example, when Jesus is 12 and he's in the temple and, you know, your mother and father were looking everywhere for you. <laughs> Did you not know that I was in my father's house? He doesn't say that Joseph is his father. He says God is his father. And so, uh, Yeah, so anyway then if we look at Jesus' own words Jesus' own teaching his own interactions with those who opposed him we also see then a confession of the virgin birth it's just you have to look more closely for it alright so we've got Matthew we've got Luke we've got John 6 we've got Isaiah 7 we've got Genesis 3 and in the center of it all we've got Jesus himself so we have good attestation from the very beginning of the virgin birth Biblically speaking. All right. Well, we're going to uh, we're going to launch off then into John six uh, for a little while, but let's save that for next week, since this is as good a place as any to stop. The Lord be with you.